With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast. When uncertainty is all around us and the facts are not clear, how can we make good decisions? That's the question asked by former Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, and Oxford Professor John Kay in a new book, Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making for an Unknowable Future. When they met their fellow economist, Linda Yu, live on stage at the How To Academy in early March, we had no idea that pretty much everyone in the world was about to start asking themselves exactly the same question. But here we are, in the thick of this unprecedented crisis, here are Mervyn and John's reflections on how we should plan ahead. The book is titled Radical Uncertainty. How do we make good decisions in a radically uncertain world? So let's just start with that. John, what is radical uncertainty? Right, uncertainty is something that arises from imperfect information. You don't know enough about the present or the future or possibly the past (laughs) to make a decision. Um, And some of that kind of uncertainty is resolvable. It's resolvable typically in one of two ways. One is you can get further information and possibly if you've assembled enough information, that's a basis on which you can be confident in making a decision. The other is that you can express the uncertainty you have in probabilistic terms. And if there is some underlying probability distribution that is creating the uncertainty or describing the uncertainty, then that's a basis on which you can go ahead in a quantitative way. But much uncertainty doesn't fall into either of these categories. It's not resolvable, either in terms of probabilities or in terms of further information. You can't get enough further information. You don't know enough about the process. And that's what we describe as radical uncertainty. Mm. Now, Mervyn, there's a quote in the book by Donald Rumsfeld, uh, which is, there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Um, And you write about that as an example of this definition. So if you could elaborate a bit on that. Well, Donald Rumsfeld coined this uh, division between known knowns, that's facts that we know, known unknowns, that is things that we know we don't know, and maybe we can describe those in probabilistic terms, and unknown unknowns, that is things we don't know we don't know. And people laughed at the press conference when he used this, but actually it captures a very important point. 
which is that there are many things that we simply don't realize that we don't know. And if we ignore that possibility, we can be making a big mistake. And if we try and pretend that everything can be described in a numerical way or a quantitative assessment, then we may be ignoring some very important facts. And the story that we like to tell about this is that people associate the unknown unknowns with Donald Rumsfeld, that he made it famous. Actually, he wasn't the first person to use that phrase. That came out of an experience in the 1950s when Britain was leading the world in terms of passenger jet transport with the famous Comet aeroplanes that we're just about old enough to remember and some of you may remember. No, and no, this John was, shaking his head, absolutely. This was uh, a very successful British plane, first jet, but one day in 1954 it crashed and they tried to find out what went wrong and they pretended that they knew what, they, they thought they'd discovered what was wrong, they'd been through everything they could think of and the plane flew again and it crashed again, killing everyone on board. And at this point, an enormous amount of effort was put into trying to work out why this plane crashed. And after several months at the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough, they found that since the Comet was a beautiful plane and it had these lovely square windows in the fuselage, they discovered that metal fatigue was beginning from the corner of those square windows. No one had even imagined that serious metal fatigue could begin at a right angle corner of a square window. And they discovered it, but it was too late for de Havilland to rescue its reputation. Boeing started to produce the 707 with oval windows. Every plane you see today has oval windows. And it was Boeing engineers who coined the phrase unknown unknowns. Maybe when John and I write our next book, 40 years from now, that we'll be able to talk about Boeing as having failed to understand unknown unknowns because of the Boeing 737 MAX problems. John, you also write about in the book the difference between puzzles and mysteries as another illustration of radical uncertainty. Yeah, a puzzle. This is a phrase that actually comes from Greg Streverton, who ran the US National Security Agency for some time. And he described a puzzle as something that is a well-defined problem which has an objectively correct answer. It may be difficult to find the answer, um, as in the case we were just talking about, but once you've found it, people know what it is, and they agree what it is. Mysteries, on the other hand, are problems that are poorly defined, and you may not know, even after the event, what the right answer to it was. Now, we thought it was interesting that uh, Treverton described that distinction as between puzzles and mysteries, and that's a really helpful phrase. But actually, if you look at a whole variety of other practical subjects, you discover people of different versions of the same distinction. Urban planners and then people and doctors talked about tame and wicked problems. Engineers talk about epistemic and aleatory uncertainty. And they all mean much the same thing. It's the difference between a puzzle with a known structure and a correct answer and a mystery which is ill-defined and the un there may be many different possible answers to it. 
And that's not just a distinction worth making in the context of thinking about uncertainty. It's quite an important distinction to understand in the context of a lot of the current concern about artificial intelligence and the hype associated uh, with that. Computers, we now know, are very good at something like chess or Go. But at these games, there are absolutely well-defined rules, and you know who's won at the end of it in a lot of the situations we face in business and finance and politics, it's not like that. Mm. And I think it's interesting that there is a parallel in the professional study of economics, mm. that most of the problems that we confront in the world, or even confront in our own lives, mm. are mysteries in the sense that they're characterized by ambiguity, mm. the ill-defined problems often, whereas the problems that economists want to work on are puzzles. They want to have models, which may be very difficult to solve, but there is an answer at the end of it. Yeah. And if you get the answer right, and it is very difficult, you've got a Nobel Prize in economics for it. <laughs> but that's the distinction between a, a puzzle and many of the problems that we actually face. And I think it's one reason why economics, as applied to the world, should not be seen as giving you precise quantitative answers to problems. What they can do best is to give you a way of thinking about the problem, framing the problem. It's, it's a way of, good economics provides parables for life. It doesn't provide precise answers. You might have been reading in the last couple of weeks, and I should think many people in the audience have, about super forecasters. Oh, yes. You remember Dominic Cummings in number 10 decided to hire a super forecaster, mm. and then they decided perhaps they didn't want one after all. <laughs> um, Oh, that, not that one, after all. The phrase, the phrase super forecaster actually comes from uh, the work of Philip Tetlock, who has run over 20 years something he calls a good judgment project. And what he's done has been to ask people to make predictions of various things uh, and assess the quality of these predictions after the event. I think the most interesting thing that Tetlock discovered was that the best predictor of the quality of a forecast was uh, how famous the forecaster was. <laughs> and it was a negative relationship, that is. <laughs> and if you have, as we all have, I think, been rung up by Radio 4 Today programme or something like that, you will understand why. Because if you say, this is a rather complicated issue, and on the one hand, on the other hand, they say, maybe we'll ring you back. <laughs> if you say something stupid and extreme, then they'll send a car round for you right away. <laughs> but um, what Tetlock has done has to been to assess the quality of forecasts and identify so-called super forecasters by this kind of means. But if you look at the questions Tetlock is asking, you'll find they're really boring questions. Like at the moment, one of the quest open questions is, will unemployment in the US exceed 4% in more than one quarter of 2020? Will the Donbass region of the Ukraine uh, be given a legally quasi-autonomous status by the end of April 2020. Now, these are not really the things people want to know. They want to know, uh, is the US moving into recession? They want to know what's going to happen in the Ukraine. 
But these are much more ill-defined, open-ended questions. They're mysteries, not puzzles. And Tetlock is forcing people to concentrate on puzzles and finding good puzzle solvers. <laughs> There's a, just a Yogi Berra quote just came into my head. The problem about predictions is that it's about the future. Mm. <laughs> um, what you just captured there, I think, is very well captured um, in your book when you point to the problems of not asking the question, which is what is going on, which is actually what we all want to know. And you say that regulators and policymakers insist on probabilities to express uncertainties, but this could actually be actively misleading. So I thought I could ask the two of you to use two recent examples to illustrate um, what happens when you do put probabilities on something like the financial crisis from 10 years ago, and then to contrast that with what President Obama did with the search for bin Laden um, and when he asked the what's going on question. So, Mervyn. Well, I'll start with President Obama and leave the financial crisis to, to John. <laughs> I'm not sure why. <laughs> and one of the most interesting stories that we discovered, because President Obama talked about it after the event, was that before the successful raid on the compound in Abbottabad in Pakistan to get rid of Osama bin Laden, he had to sit down in the Situation Room with people from the CIA to answer the following question. We know there is somebody living in this compound. Is it bin Laden or not? Now, we chose this example because there are only two possible answers. Either it is or it isn't. But after the intelligence failures in the Iraq war, the US Congress mandated that the CIA, when presenting advice to the president, had to do so in terms of probabilities to make it more scientific. So President Obama was sitting in the Situation Room and the first guy to speak says, well, I think it's sort of 80% that this guy is Bin Laden. And the next one said, well, actually, I think it's 60%. <laughs> and someone else said 90%. And someone else said 40%. He went round the room. And at the end of this, Obama said, hey, guys, this is hopeless. This is just 50-50. <laughs> but he didn't mean that he thought the probability that the man in the compound was Bin Laden was 0.5. What he meant was, hell, we don't know. And actually, for many of the most important policy questions, it is crucially important to recognize right up front that we just don't know. And then you can talk about the reasons why you might feel more or less confident that it's Bin Laden. And Obama could then have said, well, I want to hear what you think and why. What's the information you have? And then I will process the information and make my judgment. Because I will ask the question, what do I think is going on here? What Obama didn't want was for them to pretend that they could convert their views and information into a number, and then what was he supposed to do with this number? It wasn't, the probabilities were not helpful. And Obama said afterwards, the use of probabilities confused my decision and not helped it, which was the opposite of what Congress had intended. So that we think is one very powerful example, and John has another. <laughs> I think Mervyn is referring to the financial crisis of 2007-2008. And when it began in 2007, David Vinyar, who was then the chief financial officer of Goldman Sachs, gave an interview to the Financial Times in which he said, 
we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. Now, if you know anything about statistics, you know that you don't experience 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. In fact, you probably never experience a 25 standard deviation event. Uh, indeed, in the book, we print the probability of a 25 standard deviation event, and you have three lines of zeros before you finally get to a significant digit. So, Renvinier couldn't or certainly shouldn't have said, we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. But what did he mean? What should he have said? What he should have said was, we've experienced events that just cannot happen within the context of the Goldman Sachs models. And in order to make a statement about the probability in the world, what you need to do is compound the probability from the model with the probability that the model is true. But you don't know what the probability that the model is true is, certainly not for that kind of model. And what happened in the run-up to the financial crisis was that banks relied for their own internal control purposes and regulators relied for their control purposes on models which were based, essentially they were a, 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 a castle built on sand. They couldn't possibly bear the weight which was being put on them. Now if instead you had asked in a rather simple-minded way this question which sounds very banal but really isn't, which is what, what is actually going on here. You would have asked the questions about what, what was happening in 2003 through 2008 in terms of what is all this trading in complex securitized products about. And the fundamental question was there are two reasons why people might trade risks with each other. One is you're placing the risk with someone who's better placed to bear that risk than you are, which is what you do when you insure your house against it, it burning down. Or you're dumping the risk on someone who actually knows less about that risk than you do. <laughs> and both of these explanations might have been true, but in 2008 we learned which one of these was actually the dominant one. <laughs> Risks were being dumped on people who didn't actually understand them properly great two contrasting examples. I want to ask you for how we do this with the current problem, coronavirus. How do we ask the what's going on question? So I think the coronavirus is a very good example of what we mean by radical uncertainty. Uh, we knew that there were things called viruses and that from time to time a virus might emerge in another part of the world that could eventually lead to transmission from humans to human, uh, and that sometimes these could be very, very serious. But we could possibly have known when that might happen, and where it would happen, to be precise, and, and when. And, and so this was something that we had some inkling of, but we didn't know enough about. And there was no way, when we first learned about the coronavirus, that you could attach any numbers to how fast it would spread, et cetera, et cetera. We're beginning to learn a bit more, which gives us more, more knowledge. But the, the way to approach this is to say, well, we don't really know how serious this could be. It seems to be spreading very quickly. What is going on? And the answer is, 
if you say, well, we can't be sure what the consequences will be, we don't really know how serious this is, but we do know that if we do not act promptly and we don't know enough about this virus, then at some point in the next 50 to 100 years, we will have a virus that is very serious and can wipe out large proportions of the Earth's population. So it makes sense to think about a resilient and robust response where we say, what is going on? We don't really know, but it probably is sensible to accept a short-term sacrifice in our economy to put in place measures to limit how quickly it spreads, which is, of course, exactly, perhaps with a little bit of a delay, but it's what China did, and it's what other governments are now contemplating doing. It's a difficult judgment as to when you impose restrictions on people meeting together, or do you impose, you know, do you have football matches played in empty stadiums? Do you close schools? But what we do know is that the idea that there is some probability that someone has made up, which helps you make that decision, is silly. This is a difficult judgment that has to be made by the authorities. They will want as much information as they can from the scientists, but what they will end up doing is talking about it, creating a narrative, and they will base that narrative on the information they have gleaned from experts in response to the question, what is going on here? So we need experts to tell us what they think, what they know and what they don't know, but it is crucially important that we never put pressure on an expert to say, here's a number. If experts don't know, it is very important that we hear them say, look, we don't know. And we shouldn't criticize them for that. That's their expert judgment. And then we can incorporate that into our discussion of what is going on here. And then in whatever the particular issue is, in this case, coronavirus, what are the measures that we should put in place? You know, people throw around the words probability, likelihood, and confidence as if they mean the same thing, but they really don't. And coronavirus illustrates that. It was likely that an event like coronavirus would occur one day. We know that from our general scientific knowledge of the world. If you ask what is the probability that a coronavirus outbreak would occur in Wuhan in China in December 2019, that's just a silly question, basically. <laughs> and one interesting example we use is uh, Nate Silver, whom many of you in the audience will have come across as a great US political pundit who's had some success in predicting election results. But Silver believes that you can attach probabilities to everything. So he asks the question, what was the probability of the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers? I find that question pretty difficult if I think about it. But it's not difficult for him. He comes up with an answer which is 1 in 12,500. <laughs> How does he get to that answer? Well, between 1945 and 2001, he says, there were two previous events on which aircraft flew into tall buildings in Manhattan. Two. And then you calculate the number of days between 1945 and September 11th, 2001, and it's 25,000. So you divide 25,000 by two, and the probability is one in 12,500. 
Now, what's interesting that, about that example is not just that it's obviously silly, uh, but that what would make Silver's calculation right? And if these kind of things were the product of what people call a stationary or, or ergodic process, in which it was unchanged over time, in which there are aircraft flying randomly around Manhattan, and some of them occasionally crashed into tall buildings, then Silver's calculation would be the right way of, of looking at it. But actually, we have to ask, what is going on here? And it's not that. <laughs> um, I'm going to move to the... Um the final section in terms of helping us think about making decisions by asking the what is going on here question so we don't make those errors. And, um, and Mervyn, you mentioned a narrative. You call, both of you write about a reference narrative in the book. The quote that you have is from Daniel Kahneman, and I think this captures it well. The quote is, no one ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. And thinking about the narratives around these things helps. So I'm going to jump into the first question, which is, given everything we've just discussed, how should we manage our pensions, Mervyn? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to leave that one to John. He's a better expert on pensions than I am. But can I just pick up this Kahneman point? No, I'm not regulated and can't give financial advice now. <laughs> Well, that's a shame, because the advice you would give is undoubtedly better than that most of the regulated advice <laughs> would provide. But uh, to reflect on whether you feel like enlightening the audience, um, it's strange that Kahneman made this basic point, because he, he's absolutely right that people talk in terms of narratives, that even if they don't understand it, they are saying to themselves, what is going on here, and trying to construct a narrative that captures the essential points. Now, sometimes a number can be important. You know, if you're trying to decide whether to build a high-speed railway, a number for the cost is very important. It's important that it's an accurate Nothing number. Nothing in particular <laughs> comes to mind. <laughs> so numbers can be very important, but they have to be seen in the context of an overarching narrative. What is strange about Kahneman using this is that he also is someone who's advocated leaving decisions to computers. He said quite explicitly in Toronto a couple of years ago that as far as possible, we should give all decisions to computers and not to humans. Why? Because computers don't make mistakes in mathematical reasoning. Now, if that's true that computers don't make mistakes of mathematical reasoning, and humans do. But you have to ask the question, why is it that humans are the dominant species on Earth? And the answer is that although mathematical reasoning is very helpful in making calculations about the dimensions of a bridge or a building, etc., the biggest problems that we confront are ill-defined and require the human ability to mix different strands of arguments and to think about mysteries and not puzzles, whereas computers are very limited to doing what they're programmed to be able to do. And you know, the real challenge in, in all of these questions, John will talk in pensions in a minute or a different example, but <laughs> in terms of pensions, you can go to uh, the internet and you will find computer programs which purport to answer the question, how much money should I set aside this month for my pension? 
And then, unfortunately, it asks you questions that you have to answer before you get the answer from the computer. And these are questions like, you know, what will the inflation rate be in 2032? <laughs> what will your income be, you know, 17 years from now? All kinds of things to which the only answer that you can honestly give is, I don't know, but there is no space in a spreadsheet cell to enter the words, I don't know. And if you try and do it, it sort of blows up. And this is the mistake, that to believe that by making numbers up, by pretending that you have answers to these questions, you can then be given a very confident answer as to what you should do. So basically what we do in the book is to talk about you know, most people, when thinking about their life, their plans for the rest of their life, they have a reference narrative, we call it, which is a narrative which describes how they think they would like their life to evolve. And what people want to avoid are downside risks to that reference narrative, something that could go wrong. Mm. And this is a very different definition of risk to the one which people in financial markets use. They like to think about volatility. But actually, risk that matters is something going badly wrong with your plan for your life. So when it comes to pensions, what you don't want to do is to take a risk which means that you literally run out of money. Mm. But on the other hand, you don't want to invest in assets that yield nothing. Mm. Because then you've got to pay a vast amount, which is the truth today, to acquire the right to a future pension. So you, your, your pension strategy will change over your lifetime. But deep down, all of these things go back to the question, so what is going on here? Could this badly impact on my reference narrative? Mm. You know, yeah. I've talked about the linguistic confusion to mm. do with likelihood and confidence and probability. There's another set of linguistic confusions which are to do with risk mm. and uncertainty and certainty. Mm. And uh, th these are all different. And we need to think rather clearly about that. Risk in ordinary language is something bad. You never hear someone saying, there's a risk I might win the, lot the national lottery. <laughs> you never even hear them say, there's a risk I might not win the national lottery because they don't expect really to win the national lottery. And therefore, this is not a reference narrative to which there's that kind of downside. Yeah. But this is uncertainty. Mm. There is uncertainty about what the outcome of a, a process like that is. Mm. And eliminating risk is not the same as achieving certainty. The man who's going to be hanged tomorrow has certainty, but he hasn't got security. <laughs> and if you, if you think that's a silly example, then people who are providing for their pensions by investing in bonds which currently yield minus 1% in real terms are pretty much putting themselves in the position of the man who knows he's going to be hanged tomorrow. You have the certainty <laughs> that you will enjoy a very low standard of living in retirement. And that's just not a very sensible reference narrative for people to work by. <laughs> I'm going to ask one more and then wrap up and turn to the audience, which is... Um, thinking about the what is going on here question, it is made socially because you have to also think about in your book as you describe it, it's not the probabilities, it's where you would like your life to be, an example that we just discussed. So you write about this and it'd be great to hear um, it on stage. How do you avoid groupthink? 
um, if you have to make decisions socially. So if you ask the question, what is going on here, the important thing is to recognize that we should be discussing this in a group and that people will have different experiences and we should encourage people to explain in words why they have a different view and, and different experience. This is very important. In fact, the, the striking thing is that, you know, as John described, you know, risk is bad. Economists tend to jump to the conclusion that because risk and uncertainty are the same thing, that uncertainty must be bad. But it isn't. It, it's a source of many good things. But what I find with economists is that when they want to have very precise quantitative models with lots of equations, or then numbers to put into the equations for the parameters in the model, they, they, they want to do that because they want certainty about the answer that comes out from it. But when they do it, when they talk about their work, how do they develop their ideas? How do you get a Nobel Prize? Most economists that I know, before they write their papers that may win them the Nobel Prize, they talk about it with other economists in the coffee room. In other words, they are having a narrative discussion where they welcome challenge because they want to check that their ideas make sense. So what many economists do in practice but do, is very different from what they assume that rational human beings do. They want to assume that human beings are like computers because that gives an answer. But economists are human too. And in their own behavior... You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> economists behave themselves in their own company by talking about the ideas and their work in a way that's much closer to the way we should always behave when making big decisions, mm. which is to ask about it. Yeah, so you formulate a reference narrative. Yeah. You try and ensure that that re reference narrative is resilient and robust. Mm. And the primary way in which you do this is by inviting other people to challenge mm. that particular narrative. And actually, Linda, teaching at a business school as you do, you've probably had the same experience as I have of people in business who say, what we really need is someone like you to challenge our ideas. Mm. I haven't found it's very often actually true. <laughs> <laughs> but it needs to be. <laughs> Final question um, before I open it up to the audience. Um, in the book you write about, if we can control risk, we can perhaps even enjoy living with uncertainty. So, since the Second World War, economists have always assumed that risk and uncertainty meant the same thing, and they're very different. John has explained very clearly why risk is bad, it's a risk to our reference narrative, but uncertainty can be very good. And in fact, all of the good things in life that we experience come from doing something new but we didn't really know what the outcome was, and that this gives us opportunities to enjoy life in a way that it otherwise would be very depressing. So when I talk to students on their graduation ceremony, I say to them, look, you say you're worried about the future. Okay, if I could tell you today that this is a list of the things that could happen to you in the rest of your life, and these are the probabilities that they will occur, you will go out of this depressed because there's nothing really unknown and exciting to happen. And it's a good thing that at that age, they don't know who their life partner will be. They don't know necessarily what career they will follow 10, 20 years from now. I never would have guessed that I would spend half my career in the Bank of England. It wouldn't have occurred to me. Uh, they don't know in which country they may end up living. 
and all the exciting and good things of life, whether it be people uh, like Steve Jobs inventing the iPhone or actually going on holiday to a new destination where you discover somewhere that you find beautiful and rewarding to be, it's the unknown, it's the uncertainty which creates not just the spice of life, but makes life interesting and worth living. Whereas in contrast, risk is something that's bad and we should try to manage and reduce the amount of risk. And I think the fundamental core of the book is that risk and uncertainty mean, as John said, very different things. And we should control risk, but we should embrace uncertainty. You know, many people in this room will have seen the film Groundhog Day, in which Bill Murray is condemned to live the same day over and over again. And that gives you certainty. (laughs) But it gives you certainty at the price of extreme boredom. And it's so bad for Murray that in the end he wants to commit suicide. But he can't do that because that isn't in the script either. So that, as I said when we talked about um, achieving certainty, certainty is not something that you should actually wish for. Minimize risk but welcome uncertainty. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Um, now it's a chance for um, all of you in the audience to, uh, to jump in and ask your question. If you just ask your question very briefly, I'd like to get in as much as possible. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yes, sir. Hello, um, my name's Sapri. Um, firstly, thanks um, for a very powerful talk, um, and thank you also, Linda. My question is, so over your very successful careers, what is your best piece of a professional or personal advice for aspiring economists of the future? Don't plan it too carefully, because if I'd done that, <laughs> I would never have ended up being in the Bank of England. I think the main thing is just to be open to new opportunities and be willing to try them. Keep your options open. Yeah, I, I, I think the story, the general story we're telling is construct a narrative Uh, but not in specific quantitative terms and try and make that narrative robust and resilient. Hello, my name's Cindy and there's a whole row of us here from Extinction Rebellion and I suppose we're looking at risk and uncertainty although our overarching narrative, if you like, and so it's interesting to hear you mention pensions without considering the current uncertainty in relationship to losing the certainty about the climate that we're now living in. So so climate change is another very good example of radical uncertainty. We know something about it, but nowhere near enough to be sure what the right thing to do is. And I'll say two general comments on this. The first one is that I think the advent of the coronavirus has been a useful reminder that climate change is not the only way in which the world could come to a sticky end. There are many other sources of potential damage to our world and the human race. And climate change is not exclusively the issue. I don't mean by that in any way to underplay the significance of climate change, but that we should see it in the broader context of the uncertainties that we face. The second is that our general approach of keeping options open, having robust and resilient responses, does say that you don't wait until the point when you've got very precise scientific evidence about the quantitative damage that climate change is doing 
you take steps early on to limit it and find ways both to mitigate the damage, but to find a, a, a multiplicity of ways in which we can reduce emissions. And that can include a range of things from imposing taxes on the use of carbon to encouraging technology uh, to find, to give entrepreneurs opportunities to come up with new ideas that we can't even imagine today about ways to capture carbon or other sources of, of energy. In other words, what we want to do is to get away from a debate which has become almost religious in tone, in which two sides to this debate on climate change seem utterly convinced that they are right and know the answers. Whereas the right response to this is to say that we've identified something that's potentially very serious, we see signs of it, we must ask ourselves the question, you know, what is going on here and what set of policies can we adopt that would practically help reduce the speed at which climate change is occurring. That ought not to be a sort of moral or religious debate, which is, in, in, unfortunately, in some circles, that has become the, the, the tone. It should be possible to have a reasonable discussion on this and to take steps now to mitigate damage down the road, even though we don't know enough quantitatively about it, because that would be a robust and resilient response. Hello, um, my name is Harry Doherty and I write for the Evening Standard Diary. Um, my question is, um, I've noticed a lot of the people, whether they're leavers or remainers, who say, for instance, joining the euro is too dangerous, staying in the EU is too dangerous, leaving the EU is too dangerous, are often, not always, but often the same people who are quite enthusiastic to get involved in things that are much more risky. The Iraq war, the Libya effort, stuff like that which have had catastrophic consequences, but they were nowhere near as cautious about getting involved in those things as they were about things such as leaving or remaining in the EU. Um, so how do we separate those who are uh, genuine specialists uh, from those, and genuine experts or objective from those who are um, blinded by bias, whichever way it is? The Brexit debate was characterised by a huge amount of what we describe in the book as bogus numbers. People came up with numbers, both on the pro, on the leave and the remain side, for which there, there could be no underlying scientific basis. We didn't ask, the, the referendum campaign and the discussion around it didn't frame the question in the way in which we are trying to do it. What is your reference narrative? What are the kinds of relationship that Britain could have with the rest of Europe? Uh, had anyone heard the phrases Canada plus or Norway minus or WTO rules or things like that before they were asked to cast a vote in 2016? No, they weren't. This debate was characterized by all these bogus numbers being thrown around, which added essentially nothing to constructive debate. We need to manage these things in different ways and not claim to have certainties which we cannot possibly enjoy. Hi there, my name's Nancy. I was wondering what your thoughts were on a universal basic income and how that can alleviate some uncertainty for 
a lot of people in the UK if it was introduced. John, <laughs> John and I agree on this, so I like he can give the answer. <clears throat> if you go on my website, you will find a fairly extended examination of uh, a universal basic income. What you need to know about universal basic income, and almost all you need to know about basic income, is that it is either fixed at a level which is too low to achieve most of the things that its proponents claim for it, or it's pitched at a level which is higher and which is unaffordable. In order to come up with a practical universal basic income scheme, you need to start calibrating and modifying the, the basic income in ways that reflect the particular circumstances of, of the individual or household. And even in framing that question, you will see there's a large issue there, framing about the particular circumstances of the individual concerned. And once you do that, you end up with something that starts to look more and more like the rather complex benefit system we have at the moment. The reason the benefit system is complex is not because stupid and perverse politicians insist on making it complex. It's because it's not that easy a problem. Mm. Terrifically interesting talk very, to very distinguished economists. Uh, question I'd like them to uh, consider a little bit, elaborate on, is how risks get shared within a society. I'm particularly thinking of pensions and I'm thinking of the fact that probably everybody over the age of maybe 60 or 65 who've had gainful employment would benefit from a defined benefit scheme, whereas everybody under that age have a defined contribution scheme. And the risks, as we know, in one case falls on the employer and in the other case falls on the individual. So how did such, in my view, unfair redistribution of risk between generations occur? It's actually, they write about it in the book. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, deep down, as John described it, the, the cost of providing an adequate pension rose to such a level as a result of extremely low interest rates that it became unaffordable to carry on making the promises that were being made to employees because the promises that were being made or had been made to those who are now retired could not be undone. So that was a big change and it's all very unfortunate. But I want to put the, my answer in a much broader term because I think this also relates even more significantly to health. One of the distinctive characteristics about the human race is that when we discuss problems or find solutions, we achieve far more collectively than we do individually. You know, there are different species of animals that can run faster than we can, fly faster than we can, and do all sorts of things. But no other species on Earth has been able to construct an aircraft that can fly nonstop from New York to the other side of the world. And we've achieved so much in terms of science, innovation, technology, collectively. Sometimes the people are not aware of the contribution that other individuals have made, but collectively we've created a society in which this interaction is most effective. It would make sense, therefore, when thinking about our reference narratives, to ask how we can protect ourselves against the downside risk of our, to our reference narrative 
of failing health. And in most European countries, the answer has been very clear, which is we have a collective insurance scheme. We don't know which of us is going to fall ill, so we make promises to each other that we will have some sort of health service arrangement which ensures that we provide and help each other. The difficulty in the United States has always been that somehow they haven't had that collective uh, view which makes it natural to think of a reference narrative for each individual being best answered by a collective response. And that the idea of the, you know, the lone individual wanting to get rid of any interference from the state is one that is, resonates in the United States in a way it doesn't in Europe. And there are enormous costs to it, which is one of these issues that will feature very prominently in the US elections this year. Great. Thank you very much uh, for the contribution uh, here and your, and your thoughts um, this evening. My name is Bruce Fletcher. I run risk management for one of the large banks uh, uh, here in the UK, NatWest Group. And you've given me some great, great quotes to bring into my narrative uh, when we talk about risk management, so thank you. But, uh, but on this idea of a reference narrative, you, you propose putting it to people, um, having, you know, asking the question, what's going on? Um, if you read the works of Professor Schiller, you know, who you quote um, uh, in your book as well, he would argue that people are kind of hopelessly um, illogical and irrational. Um, and you're proposing, you know, precisely, let's go to these irrational people and get a better decision. H how do you neutralize that irrationality? Is, is there some secret here in asking this question and getting the right answer? Can I just start and then John can, can continue? I, I know Bob Schiller very well. I had lunch with him not so long ago. And I put to him, I said, look, you think of narratives as something which only irrational people have and they lead to fads and fashions. And in some sense, we should try and manage these narratives because they are, you know, because deep down they're irrational. And I think this is completely false. Occasionally there are narratives and views that turn out to be fashionable and people abandon them after a certain while. But we all talk in terms of narratives and most of the problems we face are ones that you can't avoid discussing in terms of narratives. John, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> We don't think people are deeply rational. Uh, and a lot of, there's an interesting history here. When the current economic framework for analyzing choice under uncertainty was developed in the 1950s, that was the beginning of behavioral economics. Because what happened then was, there was a famous dinner party actually, at which there were four future Nobel Prize winners at the, at the dinner party. And a French professor, Maurice Allais, persuaded the people at that party that they didn't follow the axioms of rational choice under uncertainty. What Allais was doing, and what people understood he was doing at that time, was not criticizing the people. He was criticizing this way of thinking about uncertainty. But behavioral economics got taken over from the 1970s, who said, this is by people who said, and this was the thrust of what Kahneman Tversky said, uh, people are stupid. And we're finding lots and lots of ways of illustrating how stupid they are. Now, let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate how we don't find that convincing. Both of them are Kahneman examples, actually. You show people a, a slide that says, a bird in the, the hand. And you ask people to read it. And most of them say, a bird in the hand. 
and you say, ha, silly you. Uh, you read what you think should be there rather than what actually is there. But who is really being stupid? Is it the person who tries to make sense out of this nonsense or the person who asks someone to read something that is nonsensical? Let me give you another example which we found quite amusing, which is that um, uh, Kahneman also asked the question, how many English words begin with, uh, have K as the first letter, like my name, as against ones that have K as the third letter, like acknowledge? Well, the argument is people find it easier to think of words that have K in the first letter than, word, than words like acknowledge that have it as, as the third letter. And Kahneman then says, stupid people, they come up with the wrong answer to this question. The trouble was we discovered that when Kahneman did this exercise, you didn't have as sophisticated computers as you now have, and you could only interrogate about 20,000 words. Now you can interrogate the whole half million words there are in the English language. And it turns out, in fact, that there are a lot more words that have K as the first letter uh, than have K as the third letter. But then you ask yourself, what on earth is this exercise about? <laughs> Why is this an interesting question? And if you could find a reason for wanting to know the answer to that question, then you might be able to approach its analysis in a more sensible way. What most of behavioral economics has consisted of doing is inviting people to engage in experiments whose whole purpose is to elucidate what you think are the wrong answers. And then you say, gotcha, that just shows how stupid you are. Now, most of these things are not actually stupidity. Uh, people, we say, are overconfident. Well, they do tend to be overconfident. If you ask people, are you better than average drivers, more than half the population think they are better than average drivers. I don't, by the way, but I'm a very unusual person in that respect. Um, uh, but actually, for most of life, overconfidence is a pretty useful attribute. Um, you were, it's a lot more fun to be with someone who's confident than someone who's not. You, you want to entrust a task to someone who is confident about it. Confident people are more fun to be with. I've sometimes argued that rational economic man would die out because nobody would want to mate with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, hello, yeah, uh, my name is Gabby. So it sounds like we might need to reframe how we think about uncertainty and, and actually embrace it and then start a conversation, build a narrative. How do you then get to a point where you decide, okay, I'm going to take an action? Because it kind of seems to me you can keep going around in circles discussing the merits of this option versus that option and so on, and then you'll grow old and you won't have a pension because you've been thinking about for 40 years whether to put extra money in the pension or not. Well, this <laughs> so is how do you take action? So it's very important uh, not to think that you should be trying to evaluate all the possible options and think through the right answer. That is exactly what traditional economics says that people do. And the reason they want to delegate decisions to computers is that computers can do that more quickly than humans can do. The, we give a, a, an, another example in the book of where 
some people turn out to be good decision makers because of their characteristics, their ability to quickly summarize what is going on here. We, we, the example is firefighters going into a, people leading a team to fight a fire. And some people are very good at saying, what's going on here and what kind of fire is it? And sometimes they're good at saying to the firefighting team, stop, get out of the building now. Because they, they feel uncomfortable and then the building collapses in the middle of the fire. And you're right, the whole point about decision-making is that you can't afford to wait that it would so long that you can possibly evaluate all the options. You have to be conscious of the timetable that you have. But the way to do that is to start by saying, so what's going on here? And use whatever time you've got to come to an impression and a view about the situation with the principles that we suggest, which is the things you shouldn't overlook are just robustness, resilience, keep options open. And it sounds very obvious, but it's amazing how many policy areas you can think of where policymakers do not behave in that way. They want to pretend that there is a really good answer that they've come up with. One of the inter interesting findings about people like Mervyn was describing, who are good practical decision makers as paramedics or firefighters, where they have to make big decisions very quickly, is that they spend very little time comparing options. They work out something to do which is generally good enough. It's probably not the best, but they're also quite ready to abandon that and move to another option if what they see isn't consistent uh, with what they describe. There's also a more general observation I can make, which is that there's a psychologist called Damasio who has made a number of studies of people who suffer brain damage so that they operate at a very low emotional level. And the kind of problem you encounter with people who operate at a very low level is that the hyper-rationality that results actually makes it almost impossible for them to make decisions. They try to make an appointment for next week. And you say, well, will it be Tuesday at 10 o'clock or Tuesday at 11 o'clock? And you can always see a lot of pros and cons of <laughs> 10 o'clock versus 11 o'clock. And you can spend the week till the next appointment debating these pros and cons. Actually, we have evolved the capability to make good decisions, which is why this behavioral economics stuff, uh, which proclaims our irrationality, is very largely missing the point. And as Mervyn said earlier, humans are the dominant species on Earth because we're actually quite good at doing these things. So we should do more to understand how it is that we make good decisions than developing some theoretical model of what good decision-making should look like. My name is Pete. I'm an uh, economics student at Open University. Um, I find the discussion about risk and rationality quite interesting with the context of the climate emergency. I feel like I'm making a rational decision to not invest heavily in a pension because I feel the institutions that pay them out may not exist when I come to claim it. And part of the reason that we are on this road of exponential um, climate destruction is because of the irrationality of humans who I'd guess most people in this room accept the science that there is a climate emergency and yet we don't have the ability to deal with it. People are still driving, still getting planes, the ice caps are still melting. Is that not an example of irrational human behaviour? And if it is so, 
do we not, in that case, have the correct ways of dealing with it? So much of this may appear collectively irrational, but it's not necessarily irrational individually. If I don't drive home tonight, that isn't going to affect climate change in any way at all. So the question is, what's the right way of approaching these collective decisions? We have a reference narrative. The biggest downside risk we could have would be for the human race to become extinct as a result of the damage from climate change. That suggests we should give great weight to this issue, but we shouldn't pretend to ourselves that it's obvious what the answer is. It's one thing to recognize there's a problem. It's another to know quite how to react to it. And uh, in no way do I intend to underplay the significance of climate change. What I'm saying is it is not obvious that there is just one policy that will answer it. We need to adopt an entire range of policies to keep our options of future existence alive. That is taking the issue very seriously. But what we shouldn't do is to pretend that there is some body of knowledge that is so 100% certain that we can rely on it. The argument for mitigating and tackling climate change should not depend on our pretending that we are 100% certain about all the scientific arguments. That's a way to destroy science, to pretend that there is nothing more to be discovered. And the same is true of, of your pension. So you know, what I'd say to you is, you may be worried about the institutions that would promise you a pension, but ask yourself the question, how are you going to protect your lifestyle and your living standards in retirement when you eventually get there? As John said, if you end up investing in something that guarantees a negative real return, you are going to have to sacrifice a lot of your income today to meet that. And that is a very unattractive outcome. And I understand why many people of your age group therefore decided, I don't want a pension. But that suggests that you need to find something other than not saving at all or saving in the wrong thing. Saving in a wider range of assets that in the long run may give you the prospect of a positive real rate of return. So the principles behind this are being willing to acknowledge uncertainty, but not using that as an excuse for inaction. We have to take decisions on a whole range of policies and robustness and resilience is the key to it. Please, can you join me in thanking this terrific tag team and duo. This week's How To Academy podcast starred Mervyn King and John Kay and was presented by Linda Yu. The producer was me, Vas Christodoulou, and the editor was John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the series, wherever you get your podcasts. In response to the global pandemic, How To Academy has shifted from live events to online live streams, offering intellectual stimulation and insight throughout the crisis. From Ian Golden, the founder of the Oxford Martin School, to Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, we really do have something for everyone. And it's all free. Find out more on Facebook, Eventbrite, or on our website. I'll be back next week when Matthew Stadlin meets neuroscientist Anil Seth to explore the nature of consciousness. Thanks for listening.